0: Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Lauren McKennett is a multifaceted Canadian artist known for her unique blend of pop, folk, and world beat music. With over 14 million records sold worldwide, she has achieved gold and platinum status in 15 countries. McKennett owns her record label, Quinlan Road, and has an extensive catalog that includes hits like The Mummer's Dance. She has received numerous awards, including two Junos and a Grammy nomination. Not just a musician, she's also an advocate for intellectual property rights and a philanthropist with her own charitable organizations. From small-town roots to global stardom, she's a self-managed powerhouse in the music industry. Lorena, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting your extraordinary catalog in preparation for this interview. Well, the first thing I want to ask you is that when students of poetry are given advice, the first piece of advice they get is to read and to read a lot to read the work of poets that make you jealous in a good way, that challenge you to experiment and stretch yourself. What are the musicians, artists, and writers that inspire and challenge you?
1: I've been exposed to Shakespeare, many of the classical uh, writers, Tennyson, uh, Alfred Noyes, uh, whose works have appeared in some of my own uh, recordings. I think Leonard Cohen, would would certainly stand in there. Joni Mitchell would stand in there. And and Tom Waits, actually. Mm. Tom Waits, for sure. Uh, when I was growing up in Winnipeg uh, or in Manitoba, and I remember spending a lot of time listening to Tom Waits and really appreciating uh, the juxtaposition of, of words together, the combinations of words, or even the interplay of words with the music. You can have something that's very... Uh, harsh, uh, in its, uh, in its theme, but you can have a very, uh, almost saccharine kind of mo- melody or arrangement and just how that, what impression that creates. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Um, so some of the St. John of the cross, of course, which I also set a poem of his to music. Yeah, those would be some
0: of them. Well, Tom Waits is a wonderful and unexpected uh, gem that you pulled out there because his oh, style mm. is so completely different from yours, but so wildly creative. Um, so that's a, that's a wonderful connection. Mm. Uh, so writing lyrics doesn't come naturally to all songwriters. What advice do you have for songwriters who are unsure mm. in their ability to write lyrics?
1: Oh, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk, about authenticity, I think, to think of, think in terms of authenticity and that meaning that tap into your own personal experience. Don't get too preoccupied or trapped into copying or emulating other 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 people. you each person will have their own very unique uh, uh, life and history and path that they've walked and experiences of course that go with that. So I think that would be one of the first uh, steps. And then to uh, to really delve into the you know sometimes very microcosm type of areas new, where, where nuance may lie, and that also can bring in forward an intimacy um, that people I think they sometimes look to music and song, uh, poetry to express things that they are feeling but they don't have the uh, capacity to create themselves, so they become. You become amp- and a kind of amplifier mm-hmm. or a surrogate for for that. So, and because the human condition is is pretty, you know it's a universal thing, people all over the world can relate to certain uh, themes, whether it's struggle or love or loss or uh, and and bringing your own personal experience to
0: that. Well, I think that the point you make about even a small thing, can get amplified through, po- especially poetry and song, a little harder maybe perhaps with a novel. Uh, but with poetry and song, you don't need a massive idea. And that's one of the feedbacks I give to poets that are getting started is you can you can have a very simple thing be a beautiful poem. It doesn't need Absolutely. to be a massive idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So poets, unless they are writing purely autobiographical poems, mm-hmm. invest a considerable amount of time researching the backstory and details of a poetic idea, on a treasure hunt for ideas, phrases, and words that will enrich a poem, given the historical context of many of your songs and albums, how do you approach research as a part of the creative process, which must be a lot of fun?
1: <laughs> well, yes, it is. I mean, the whole uh, exercise or path of research for a recording is uh, a wonderful endeavor because since about 1991, it's, it begins with traveling to different places. So I've traveled to across Europe, and into Morocco, to Turkey, Greece, Mongolia, China, and took the train from Vladivostok to Moscow. (laughs) So all of these um, gave me a very personal and visceral and multiple sensory kind of exposure to places. And that in turn really has informed the imagery that, that I've, I've been attracted to or drawn to create. Either the imagery through uh, the description in the words or imagery through the, the arrangements or how I might guide instruments to create certain sound effects. Or, um, but uh, But also when it comes to existing poets, because I've really focused on the history of the Celts and the geography that that history has taken in, which goes back to about 500 BC and into Asia Minor, um, I gave myself a wide berth as to the poets that I might or that I might draw upon. Um, I mean, I really only just touched the surface of it. But if, from a chronological standpoint, I moved to Stratford, Ontario, in 1981 and worked at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival. So. Being exposed to Shakespeare uh, through those years gave me, I mean, a, a, an unbelievably rich exposure to a wordsmith who was dealing with the human condition mm. in a universal kind of way. So whether it was uh, this piece from The Tempest or from Cymbeline uh, that I set to music, I think for the visit and in the Mask of or that with the Lady of Shalott, that sort, sort of, felt largely in the canon of of Celtic mythology and and so on. so that was one of the first criteria. but then I get down to rather pragmatic criteria. Um, are the phrases singable you know mm-hmm. are the words singable? Uh, are they in a kind of uniform um, metric kind of uh, and 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 does it have strong imagery because uh, imagery, uh, so when I think of the Lady of Shalott or the Highwayman, are are highly evocative poems. Um, so those are some of the uh, the ingredients that I look for.
0: Terrific. And then building on your interest and inspiration from Celtic culture. I'm curious about how the Celtic languages have influenced your writing, and it's more the distinct sound of Celtic languages and the words and phrases unique to those languages. Uh, how has that been an influence?
1: Well, it hasn't been as much an influence as perhaps I would have liked, mm. um, you know, uh, but given that we we're only <laughs> given 24 hours a day <laughs> I end up choosing to manage my career rather than delve in some more of the deeper creative uh, uh territories which this would have fallen I did start to learn uh, an Irish Gaelic piece um but and enough to get a sense of the texture of the mm-hmm. language and
0: that's really what I'm getting um, at yeah
1: yes uh, and and that it you know it's very singable as well um But, uh, you know, with the Celts, where the the Celtic culture comes in more in my realm is less the language itself than what was important to them. And what was important to them was the natural world and in particular their deep reverence for trees. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the catalogue, in my catalogue of of recordings, uh, there are many mentioned, you know, some are very focused on trees like Two Trees by W.B. Yeats or Bonnie Port Moore. Um, but, uh, that, that, but that doesn't really come through the actual language itself. It's it's more the cultural um, philosophy and ethos.
0: Well, the raw materials of poets are words, phrases, empty space, the position of words on the page. As a musician, you have additional tools, including, in your case, a diverse array of instruments. Here's a tiny tiny sampling, hurdy-gurdies, fiddles, percussion, Greek lyres, lutes, and of course, harp and piano, to name just a few. When writing a song, how do you approach crafting the soundscape and how do lyrics influence the sounds you choose?
1: Well, this goes back to the, uh, the process that I've gone, I put myself through in terms of, um, it begins with identifying a geography of where the Celts were that I want to focus on. And this really began in earnest for the Mask and Mirror, where I started with Galicia up in the northwest corner of Spain, and that being a Celtic jurisdiction. And um, then I traveled there, but you can't study uh, uh, Spanish history in Galicia without understanding the role of the moors. In those travels that I take, and I was mentioning earlier about gathering a lot of imagery or multiple sensory information, could be smells, could be light, could be sounds. So that forges a picture in my mind. And I think there's almost, there's an image for almost every single song that I have created on a recording that is like a snapshot in my mind. And so that, that snapshot becomes the anchor for on which I work to go and paint
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> in
1: the studio uh, and with different instruments. So I remember being at Real World, Peter Gabriel's, I mean, we've recorded there a, a lot since the 90s. And um, because Peter's been so heavily into world music, if I was looking for an Esraj player or a Komenchi or, or a, a Uh, different kind of bowed instruments. I could dial them up, but I was trying to match the sound and the personality of the instrument to the painting that I was trying to make. And I think one of the songs, uh, the Gates of Istanbul off of um, an ancient muse, what I wanted to do was create this this imagery of this hot, the the the, the mirage that ha- the kind of dances above the ground when it's really really hot, and I'd ask Hugh Marsh, the my fiddle player, but he's so much more than a fiddle player, a violinist. He, he can put his violin through various effects, and he and and we were exploring how to create this mirage. So I'm always looking for instruments that help inform a place mm-hmm. and a time. So the more east I went, the more I would gravitate to Eastern or Middle Eastern instruments. But at the end, you know, I I also like uh, when I was um, uh, first exposed to to Celtic music, I was listening to a wonderful harper from Brittany called Alain Stavelle. And he mixed um, traditional uh, uh, Breton instruments like bombard and harp along with Uh, heavy metal, like drums and electric guitar and cello. So when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's great. Because that gave me a license to to paint. But But the instruments and the idiom that they're played in is very, very important in terms of setting that sense of
0: place that's beautiful my mom is a composer i've asked her this question too it's like how do you pick out of the almost infinite collection of sounds that can be created and not only just the the instrument but the person you choose to play the instrument there's just so many things that come into the decision
1: absolutely absolutely
0: well in all souls night you wrote figures of cornstalks bend in the shadows held up tall as the flames leap high the green knight holds the holly bush to mark where the old year passes by. It's impossible for me to read these lyrics without hearing the music that accompanies them. How do you create balance between the music and the lyrics so they reinforce and complement each other?
1: Whoa. <laughs> That's a very academic question, that's above <laughs> my pay grade.
0: <laughs> Give your intuitive answer. Yes, I know that many of these creative process questions are almost impossible to answer. It's like when people ask me, how do, how do you, how did you write that poem? And I said, I, I wrote you know, it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 my process is very ad hoc and that would be that um, sometimes I start with phrases or words or images. Uh, sometimes I'll start with uh, melodies and it's just, you build, uh, at least for myself, I just build out from there. And there are certain images, for example, though, you know, what I'm trying to capture there in All Souls Night was re- was really important to me. <laughs> and so I, I needed to somehow grab some of those traditional festival, um, pagan kind of, mm. uh, connected with the natural world uh, kind of markers. And, and so then it's, uh, uh, but it's, I don't know after a certain point. I mean, I think this is why the title of the visit, you, I, I it's kind of like I prepare myself through the research and the travel and the exposure, reading different kinds of things. And then it's like you, you prepare yourself for the visit for the next chapter of what's going to happen, but you don't control it. It's like going fishing. You can go early in the morning and you can have the best rod in the best place. It doesn't mean you're going to fish something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I love the way you describe I mean I was thinking about that you almost I, I sometimes when I'm working on a poem it'll just soak in my brain for years and then I'm visited by this creative whatever it is yes. and I can't quite put my fingers on it so I can completely relate to that well, and that's
1: meant, good, and I hope AI won't be able to do it either. Uh well, you, remain, domain of us. <laughs> I
0: I am not worried about that at all because uh, going back to something you said earlier, AI does not have a lived experience. It has a it has the I guess a a shadow of the lived experience of others as an amalgam as sort of a soup, but it does not have an individual's lived experience. And particularly for poetry and song, I think that's. Such a critical element, and I've you know, I played around with AI and, and had it generate workable but pretty soulless poetry
1: at this time. Maybe if it has a, another 10 years of troll over it, it'll, it'll start emulating itself, and who knows?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned this already a little bit. You've created songs using the words of other poets The Stolen Child by Yeats, The, the Lady of Shalott, which you mentioned by Tennyson, or two of several examples. And you mentioned this a little bit, but dig a little deeper. When when looking, what do you look for in a poem, particularly that you touched on before, the singability of a poem? What makes something singable and not singable?
1: Well, uh, I'm not prone to singing uh, or writing many what I would call abstract uh, Odd time signature kinds of things, so it it has to have that usually in a three four 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 some kind of uh, common feeling uh, from a rhythm standpoint. The other things is that uh, that that there are certain vowel, you know vowels you want vowels, not a lot of consonants, and this goes back to my classical training. And why, let's say, Italian is so beautiful to sing in. I mean, the Italian language is just so rich with words that with glorious vowels. Um, so that that it it can come down to that. Um, you don't want multiple syllable words that become really difficult. You want you know it, two three syllable words max is <laughs> is, uh, is plenty. Um, but also that the choice of word. And it's such a fascinating subject, you know, translation. When I was, uh, I was looking at um, for Dante's prayer uh, and uh, uh, Dante's Inferno. And I was looking at different translations there and same with St. John of the cross and, and the dark night of the soul. There are some words that are not only more singable, but they're they're just simply more evocative and mm-hmm. seem to grow, uh, capture uh, the essence of what one is wanting to express better than others. So th- there's a l- obviously a lot of considerations that go into these things.
0: And using uh, another example, the ballad of the Fox Hunter, also by Yeats, uh, which opens with the lines, lay me in a cushioned chair, carry me, ye four, with cushions here and cushions there, to see the world once more. When you're adapting a poem to work as a song, you, and I've noticed you, you necessarily make edits, talk to me a little bit about the edits that you make to ensure the poetry works as music.
1: And you want to make sure that the the melody uh, you know, and the emphasis lies in the right place. Um, you don't want the, the wrong emphasis to come at the wrong place, musically speaking. I mean, people who are in the nuts and bolts of this will understand this, probably for the average person, it m- might not cross their mind or maybe don't even really understand what we're talking about. But um, that that is important. Um, I'm just trying to think of some of the other, you know, I mean, with the Lady of Shalott already. I can't remember. We think we did about twelve verses, but I think there's many more verses than that. And and see, you know, that was that was a a gamble in the first place to put something, a poem, uh, that long. Uh, I would just sign with Warner Music Canada and the Warner Music Group around the world. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, you know, here's this artist putting this (laughs) 12-minute poem of Tennyson song. So we edit it down and there you edit it. So you make sure that the story keeps moving along. Uh, uh, So and it's not this massive descriptive Landscape, which which I would have loved, uh, and I think it would, would have been an interesting exercise in itself to set the whole poem to music. Mm-hmm. But you also have to take into account the contemporary mindset. Do people uh, are their attention so short? Um, but this was also the challenge with the Highwayman. Uh, uh, how I approached that. So, for example, you you know, there's the imagery of the Highwayman and this horse riding riding so i brought the boron the irish drum the boron in to kind of create this Mm. lilt that is more like a gallop but when the story gets to where the military come in i then bring in a snare drum and we're crisp on the beat very crisp on the beat whereas the boron is more loping and you get that kind of galloping feeling so you know there's different layers uh of uh that that there are different tools and techniques you have to create the feeling, the psychology of what the what the poem is about or what you know original material is about. Um, and that probably for me was one of the most interesting and protracted I might say we've got I mean we're still working on tape in ninety eight on yeah. uh, so <laughs> reels and reels and reels um, and versions and versions and versions <laughs> I mean,
0: well, I just think it's very interesting, though, that you, especially for longer songs, which you're adept at, not, not all bands are, uh, is creating this momentum and arc. And where it where a seven-minute song may not feel like a seven-minute song, it feels just right.
1: Well, that's the challenge, is how do you keep it interesting and how do you pe- keep people engaged? I mean, a lot of all of these poems are quite compelling in their own right to be heard uh, and back in the day when people didn't have a whole bunch of other distractions or other options, you know, their minds were very tuned in to sitting and listening and comprehending things for a length of time. You think of the um, some of the Indian music, which you know the the rajas go, they go on for for very long mm-hmm. periods of time. So, but yes, it, it, and so you're talking about texture, talking about color, you're talking about uh, how to adapt or express the rhythm component so people won't be cognizant that there are these changes and this morphing uh, in the actual musical arrangement but it's certainly in the many things that I've done I've been very cognizant of that uh, technique.
0: Well as a poet getting feedback is critically important you can write um, without feedback you can occasionally write a really really good poem but it'll be sporadic as a with feedback, you can consistently write poetry that's that's really beautiful. And part of that feedback comes through open mics and live performance. Um, with the complexity of the music you create, what's your feedback loop? And does the audience play any role in the feedback loop? And I asked that question recently of Daniel Ash and David Jay, who are co-songwriters for the band Love and Rockets. And one of them said, and they write kind of Paul McCartney style songs independently mm-hmm. and then occasionally collaboratively. Um, one of them said that, oh, the song is baked on the album, it's too late for feedback. And the other said he does little house parties where he will play music at the earliest stages and then get feedback there. So what's, just in broad strokes, what is the mechanism you use to get feedback?
1: Well, there's the one I use and then there's the one I wish I could use. <laughs> and the one I wish I could use is get the the songs developed and rehearsed and and a little bit performed in order to get feedback from people. Uh, that would be what I wish I could do. Uh, I've never uh, never really been able to do that. I'm not a very prolific writer. And I think, again, mm. that's largely because I've chosen to manage my career and probably 70% of my time is spent in a management mode and maybe 30% as an artist and all that comes with it. Um, but so when we go into the studio, uh, I will still be writing. And I remember when I, uh, I remember when we were working working on the Book of Secrets and it was May of 97 or whatever. And um, I was just starting to work on The Mummer's Dance, which went on to be this hit for me in, in the United States and Canada across four radio formats. But I only had, you know, a bit of a verse and a chorus or something. And in the big room at Real World, there are isolation booths and I had asked the engineer and my colleague Brian to go and do an exercise so I could go back to writing in the, in the, in the right. I had set up this little writing station in the writing booth. I asked Hugh Marsh, the fiddler that I work with, a very, very fine violinist who's often down in Los Angeles working in films. with all them. I said, Hugh, would you just come in and listen to this for a minute? I'm not sure whether I should keep working on it or not. So I played a little bit of it and he's, he listened he said yeah no i think you should keep working on that piece (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's how tenuous and he said you know if he was indifferent even I, i probably would have abandoned it and that and that speaks to you know this whole thing of feeling that what one does is not complete until you have a chance to share it and and through that you do get a a bit of a a barometer of what the impact uh, impact can be.
0: Well, I had a rare opportunity to see Kimbra, um, the artist from New Zealand, work and she was at a label and went independent and was working on a new album and crowdfunding it, actually, after quite a bit of success on a label. And uh, she did a one shot little show and with 20 people, no recording allowed it, you had to agree that you weren't going to share anything out like a year before the album came out. And just to get a gauge with just a couple members of her band and there were 20 of us mm-hmm. literally standing around her. It was extraordinary. And the next time I saw her when the album came out was in a venue with thousands of people. So I will say, if you ever get the chance to do that, you will make 20 fans absolutely gobstruck <laughs> thrilled. Although it, uh, that's that's certainly unusual. That's the only time I've ever had that experience. Well, I've got one more question before I hand the mic over to you to recite several of your songs. Uh, So your albums, and thank you for creating albums, by the way. I am still a listener of albums. Your albums are uh, more than a collection of songs. They have unifying themes and sources of inspiration and incredible liner notes. The Mask in the Mirror uh, CD liner notes include journal entries about your travels. The song Marrakesh Night Market includes the note. I am struck by the hooded features of men as they pass through the lights and shadows. They look monk-like. that's a poetic line. And the song includes the lyric. The lessons are written on parchments of paper. They're carried by horse from the river Nile. Says the shadowy voice in the firelight. The cobra is casting the flame a winsome smile. I'm fascinated by the editorial choices required to create a cohesive album more than a collection of songs. When in your creative process does a vision for that album emerge? Are you writing songs to fill in an album or does the album emerge from the songs you've created or something in between?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I, the, the, that handful of recordings from 91 to 2006, as I mentioned, were uh, uh, anchored on particular geographical regions that uh, featured the history of the Celts. So in For Mask and Mirror, it was, more or less focusing on Spain, Um, for the Book of Secrets, actually, I parked in Tuscany. The the Celts were contemporaries of the Etruscans, and and I was kind of looking for uh, inspiration there. And with an ancient muse, uh, I was focusing more on the geography of Greece and Turkey. Um, So, after that, I, I've been reading material, I wrote songs, but ideas or themes or focal points start to emerge from all that travel, from reading, from listening to things and watching things. And I think, ah, here's an interesting moment. I'm going to double, here's another interesting mm-hmm. moment. And trying to excavate some of that history and bring it into, into these songs. But there, then there's a, a critical point where I feel it's like building an umbrella, right? The title, the concept um, is the very top of the umbrella and out of that are these spokes of songs. So that the title, I actually come, try to come up with a title in my mind relatively early on, again, to ensure that things hinge together in a, in a kind of cohesive way. Um, so... Uh, that that that's really it. I mean, there are other pragmatic things, for example, that if particularly if there's any lengthy songs, i like to have an instrumental before or after them because the mind just needs a break from it. Um, but I'm trying to look at all that imagery, all those experiences. I mean, though that what you just read from Marrakesh Night Market. I mean, I had been in Marrakesh mm-hmm. in '93 during Ramadan which was really interesting and I stayed right in the uh, the main square there the would have it's forgotten what it's called um which sadly they've just incurred this horrible earthquake mm-hmm. but I traveled uh so some of that imagery was occurring each each night in that market square including the cobra and the you know the snake charmer and this whole, Uh, array I mean this multiple sensory array that just came to life when at the end of when sundown and people were breaking their fast and everybody coming from the mountains and it was chocker block it was it was absolutely exquisite and so exotic and I just felt so compelled to somehow capture some of that what I was I was witnessing in in that night market so um yeah, it, 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 but it is often informed by these travels and these these images. Let's say even like um, Dante's prayer. I mean, a large part of that was conceived as I was on a train from Vladivostok to Moscow uh, in '95, uh, December, all by myself in this Trans-Siberian Express, and working towards. The Book of Secrets, but uh, you know, reading some of Dante's Inferno, but also looking at what I was witnessing outside the train carriage across Siberia, and there are a lot of tough, tough situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was all ruminating and uh, percolating and marinating in my mind.
0: You know that's advice I got once when I asked uh, an artist how they uh, how they overcome writer's block or when they sense it coming, and their advice was leave your house. Not leaving your house can mean getting on an airplane if you don't have the resources to do that. It can be walking in a neighborhood that you've never walked in before. It's just you you're you just need to like refill that 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 pool of, of um, inspiration.
1: That was probably one of the most important things I learned about myself in relationship to creativity that. That And why I often have to just leave my home uh, because there's a kind of muscle memory around where I live and there's always things to do. And it it keeps my feet so much in a a mortal kind of way. Whereas if I can go, particularly by train, Mm. but even when I was working on the Book of Secrets and I'd hold up into this wonderful old villa in Tuscany, and i would have my you know i'd be sitting there with the books all spread over the, the dining table and and i'd be reading them and then it'd be time to go for a drive and i get in the car and i bring my little tape recorder and i bring my little notepad and i'd just go for a drive into the country and there was something about the constant changing visual scenery which for me would be far better than let's say getting in a plane where you you can't see anything you're just in yeah. this, this cylinder but i i really felt that that breaking your you, that that tendency of the mind to get fixed on things is there's something quite freeing uh, creatively uh, when you are moving around?
0: Absolutely. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read a few selections from your extraordinary catalog.
1: So this is the this is the lyrics for a full circle which I composed for my recording The Mask and Mirror in 1986. I think I had. T- Spent about a week in a Benedictine monastery just outside of Quebec City. Uh, and I arrived the day that there was the first snowfall. And uh, this was an extraordinary moving week uh, of, of uh, in this monastery and reflecting on these individuals who were devoting them, themselves to uh, worship. Um, And it was something, an experience that I wanted to capture in some way. So this is uh, the, the lyrics of the song, Full Circle. Stars were falling deep in the darkness as prayers rose softly, petals at dawn. And as I listened, your voice seemed so clear, so calmly you were calling your God. Somewhere the rough sun rose or dunes in the desert, such was the stillness I ne'er felt before. Was this the question, pulling, pulling, pulling you? In your heart, in your soul, did you find peace there? Elsewhere snowfall, the first in the winter, covered the grounds as the bells filled the air. You in your robes sang, Calling, calling, calling him. In your heart, in your soul, did you find peace there? So in, in that one, when I refer to this, the the sunrising or the dunes in the desert, I was also reflecting on this very meditative moment I'd had when I traveled to Morocco, down into the desert and got up at sunrise and thinking this... This sentiment of worship uh, uh, is in that place as well. I guess the next one next um, set of lyrics that I would read for you, uh, and I mentioned earlier in our conversation was Dante's prayer. And it was it was conceived as I was working on the Book of Secrets. And um, and I had been parked in this wonderful old villain Tuscany and reading some of Dante's work. But in that period, I had had the opportunity to travel, actually tour with the chieftains in Japan in December of 95. And I knew that the Celts had been on the Russian steps, the the oldest, earliest Celts. And I thought this might be the only time I get to travel across Russia. So about the 5th of December, I packed up things in, 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 in Japan. I'd been staying with friends in Tokyo and flew from Nikita to Vladivostok and got on board uh, the Trans-Siberian Express at midnight on a Sunday night and got off the next Sunday morning in Moscow and realized what I was witnessing was a country in incredible transformation. Uh, there were spontaneous food bazaars that would occur at various stops and the train uh, travel. I mean, there's a whole story to be talking about this whole train trip, but I realized um, the vulnerability uh, of, of the people who were arriving at those those train stops selling their, their wares, whether it was bread and so on. And but the key in this was the female steward on the train, who initially was very, very suspicious of this Canadian woman who was traveling by herself. And I on the Tuesday of that week, I gave her some actually salmon, the freeze-dried salmon that I brought from British Columbia. I gave it to her and her friends or colleagues that were having lunch. And after that, she looked after me the whole trip, which I realized was a very, ris- very very risky scenario because there were roving bands of, of people uh, up and down the train. And I just stayed in the train carriage. So part of this was um, was merging, blending what I was reading about Dante and the human condition, what I was seeing out the window, but also thinking of, of, of this steward. She'd come to my my cabin after I'd given her and her colleagues this salmon. And instead of being highly suspicious, she opened the door and she said proudly, my name is Galia. And she looked after me for the rest of the trip. So this uh, these were some of the things that were swimming around when I was composing the lyrics of Dante's prayer. When the dark wood fell before me and all the paths were overgrown, when the priests of pride say there is no other way, I tilled the sorrows of stone. I did not believe because I could not see, though you came to me in the night. When the dawn seemed forever lost, you showed me your love in the light of the stars. Cast your eyes on the ocean, cast your soul to the sea, When the dark night seems endless, please remember me. Then the mountain rose before me by the deep well of desire from the fountain of forgiveness beyond the ice and the fire. Cast your eyes on the ocean, cast your soul to the sea. When the dark night seems endless, please remember me. Though we share this humble path alone, how fragile is the heart. Oh, give these clay feet wings to fly, to touch the face of the stars. Breathe life into this feeble heart, lift this mortal veil of fear. Take these crumbled hopes etched with tears, will rise above these earthly cares. Trust your eyes on the ocean, Cast your soul to the sea. When the dark night seems endless, please remember me. So, which brings us more in a contemporary sense? I mean, these are all rather contemplative Mm -hmm. (laughs) pieces, but there are pieces that I have to say when I reflect back on the wordsmithing and trying to—they were perhaps. In my own humble opinion, better than some of the other things I've written, and I think you know this part. This next uh, piece called "Lost Souls" is from my most recent record, studio recording <clears throat> called "Lost Souls," and reflecting where we are at in terms of of history and time, partially uh, to do with what we have done to the Earth and the, and the environment, um, but also. Reflecting on how we got ourselves trapped in a, a a poorly defined concept of progress, and sometimes mm-hmm. progress has is the embodies the wisdom to know when to stand still. And I have been deeply preoccupied by uh, you know not only climatic things but particularly the technological side of things. So this is um, then i wondered. You know, are we as a species lost souls? And this is a bit of a reflection on that. The journey's over and another's just begun. Beneath the moonlight and by the warming sun, I seek to hold you in sunshine or in rain. Beneath the heavens, I'm coming home again. So far we've drifted like ships upon the sea, horizons fading, we lost to destiny, storm clouds hover our vanity like pain which held back the winds that bring us home again. Can I see now the swallows in their flight? Watch the moon dance on the oceans in the night. The trees reach upward to help the birds to fly and what of the creatures who will hear them when they cry? We walk the hillside like lost souls in the night, and in the darkness, we're searching for the light. And in the morning, like freshly fallen dew, much like a moon's breath, I'm coming home to you. This journey's over, another's just begun, beneath moonlight or by the warming sun. For I remember that if my heart be true, just like an eagle, I'm coming home to you.
0: That was a thrill, of course, and I know it will be for listeners. Um, your Those particular choices work so well as standalone poems, too, which is large, not always the case for, for song lyrics. They really depend on the music or, or they're secondary to the music, but those completely stand on their own and I loved how you read them. Uh, that was wonderful. So just a couple of questions before I let you get back to all the things you have to do. Uh, so you, uh, as we talked about, you, you employ an extraordinary array of musicians. You have a lot of things to think about, how it's going to be recorded, then adapted for touring with so many elements in play how do you know when to stop editing? And that's a problem poets deal deal with all the time is, uh, you know, there's a point of over editing where the poem starts to get worse. So how do you, what are, and I realize a lot of this is instinct and there's no magic formula, but, you know, talk a little bit about how, you know, when to call it quits on a song and right. just let it say, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I mean, there's the wordsmithing and then there's the music and then there's the putting together of them. And so I, 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 and unlike a poet who is just focusing on the words, mm-hmm. often looking at the package of the two of them uh, at the same time. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I do drafts of them and and thanks be to God, and I, I in the studio will will record, and then i I often <laughs> it's not a very environmentally sensitive thing to do, but I'll get in the car and i'll i'll take this and it, and it was always cd's right <laughs> it's still cd's and i listen to i i go on that that drive again move, letting my muscle memory of where i am not block me into a place and just even get distracted and come back to it and and so as like, oh you know there's a word there's a better word for what that what i'm wanting to say or it you know it's it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating um so that is really the best thing I can do. But after that, it is, I do uh, canvas all oh, the engineers and the musicians mm-hmm. and my colleagues, and they know that I don't want sycophants around me. I, I want real honest Uh, feedback um, that there's no wrong answer (laughs) and so I rely upon them and we've got layers of people who are I can trust will give me uh, kind of feedback it's a bit like that what that you know taking and performing songs before you record them or uh, that kind of stuff so I, I do test them you know stress test them but that's a time and circumstance allows sometimes, you know, I'm, I, I, because I'm always the producer and the executive producer, I'm living with the hat on saying we've got this amount of time, mm-hmm. this is budget and it's gotta be done. And most certainly there have been pieces that I have finished and put on recordings. I knew were not the best renderings of those pieces, but they just had to be done. You know, we were booked, we booked a tour four months after the release and, you know, we were, We're boxed in.
0: So you touched on something that'll be uh, my second to last question, which is uh, you manage an extraordinary amount of your career, which is not always the case. Uh, There are bands that are totally dependent on others to deal with all those logistics. An interesting little footnote is Margaret Atwood's first book of poetry was self-published, which I I did not know. That was really interesting. So what have you, what advice do you have for musicians who decide to take a path where they're you know, they have their own label. They're publishing their, their own work. And and what are the advantages and challenges of doing so?
1: Well, I mean, the, the trajectory of my career is, is a lovely, lovely story from the standpoint that I made my first recording in 1985. But I, when I did that, I was armed with a wonderful book called How to Make and Sell Your Own Recording by Diane Rapoport. And of course, she got into really all the pragmatic issues the technical things the publishing things the legal all, all and it was just a fantastic bible to have and without that i would not have had the confidence to know what was the repertoire of things to think be aware of or or understand um so Uh, And because I began by busking on the street, I busked Hmm. at the St. Lawrence market in Toronto and Granville Island in Vancouver and Covent Garden in London, England, and built things up brick by brick slowly from particularly 1985 to 1991. And selling, uh, you know, giving stores cassettes on consignment and dot I learned how the pricing went and learned about the importance of publicity and marketing and blah, blah, blah. And and also uh, how to put myself and then a few of us and then about six of us on the road where I built. And from that, I, I used a manual that was from the Canadian Arts Council um, just on touring. So, again, it talked about budgets and talked about cash flow and logistics. So... In those years, um, I, I, I mean, I still don't have a manager. I would say Most people would say I'm unmanageable. But um, uh, it, it, it was a slow brick by brick with, uh, with a very good guide, I think, t- is to find the contemporary version of those guides. Um, to just get out there and and do things, and and even if one ends up having some kind of management, at least you'll be a better business partner with your mm-hmm. manager. Um, but the sad thing in the music industry is that the there's two sides of it. One is the music m- music making and creating and the that and the commodification of that music. The other is the touring side, and the first side is is is, is has collapsed. It's mm-hmm. it is it, it is uh, so. Currently, there's not, I would say, a strong business argument to be creating a lot of expensive music. The music that I've created is very, very expensive because we'll hole up in real world and I'll bring all these exotic musicians in. And if I was to say, oh, I'm going to make a record with piano, bass and drums and you know, guitar or something that is more you know, accessible, that's different. But, um, you know, so I, I, I really caution people to know their stuff before they head out uh on this journey it it it, i i I, again i'm trying to be honest i'm i don't think my career could have gotten built and now as it did then uh, the way things are set up uh because musicians on the musicians composer side where we used to get paid 25 cents per song we might now get paid 10 cents per thousand plays by spotify and 0.0013 cents in google play and so on so that's a whole other conversation but uh, I, I I don't discourage people from learning, but rather encourage people learning uh, the bricks and mortar of the business. And, and I think there is a way of balancing. But the way I would do it when I have done it, I literally carve out seasons or weeks or months of that. I'm just functioning as the artist because... I can't create when I'm tethered to Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other, you know, appointments and pragmatic details of budgets and marketing plans and logistics and so on. So I deliberately carve out long, big periods of time to work on a recording and just hang out the side.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that last piece of advice is so important is that uh, I'm a big hiker uh, and the first 30 minutes of a hike is kind of a grind and then you get going and then then you go for hours and hours and time changes. I think a very similar thing in the creative process is there is a a period of time for your brain to get warmed up and then you can start flowing. And if you're too fractured, you never get into a flow because you never warm Mm -hmm. up to it. So it's so important to, to compartmentalize to a degree.
1: Yeah, you really have to respect your own physiology of your brain. It really needs to be in a creative way. I I believe it needs to be unfettered from all manner of pragmatic. <laughs> yes.
0: So finally, you are touring this fall in North America, and I'm sure knee deep in all of the logistics since you manage your career. Uh, and next year, so in North America this fall, and, and next year in the United Kingdom and Europe, what can fans expect in addition to your revisiting the album, The Visit?
1: Well, it, certainly in the, the our tour coming up in the United States, uh, we'll also be performing from of uh, the most recent studio recording, Lost Souls. Um, because we never once that was released, we never toured in the US on it where we had it in Europe. Mm-hmm. So in this fall, the just dis- the difference between the fall tour and the spring tour, which are both branded as the visit revisited, it that means that we're performing the, the visit recording. In, from top to bottom, in order in the second set. Um, but in the United States, we'll be leaning more heavily on the first set from the Lost Souls, relatively new recording. And in Europe, we'll be probably doing a mixture of of uh, across all the catalog. So well, but it's, we're really, really looking forward to it.
0: Well, I uh, break a leg on your tour. And I look forward to catching you in one of the locations that you, that you visit. And Lorena, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your lyrics, your voice, your experience on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, James. Thank you so much.
0: The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.